0: Growing up as a a victim of American television, I recall a show that was on quite a bit growing up, The Twilight Zone. Some of you remember all those episodes. Rod Serling is always in the corner setting up the whole scenario. Sort of a thing like, submitted for your approval. Approval. Two men catapulted into the future. Suddenly they're in the twilight zone. And then those little ding, 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 those little notes keep going in the background. And that show is a success because of the intrigue, the mystique, the what-if situations. Or the futuristic situations. What if in the future this would happen? In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, where I'm having you turn today to look at a passage of Scripture... It is sort of like a Twilight Zone episode passage. It is prophetic, but it is not what if as much as it is coming. Predictions made by Jesus Christ about the future. About a fourth, we figure, of all scripture is prophetic. And prophecy is simply history written in advance. Since God knows the end from the beginning, He tells us what is going to come to pass. And by the way, it's one of the calling cards of God. God challenged the people in the Old Testament. See if there's anyone else who can pull this off. I'm going to declare something before it ever happens so that when it happens, you'll know that I'm the Lord, your God. Having you turn to Matthew 24 today, we're only going to be able to skim some of these verses. It is not a comprehensive study but I hope that it will provoke you to excitement and preparation. When I say excitement, I don't mean excited about world events necessarily. They're enough to make anybody depressed. But I hope they'll excite you about the very theme of Matthew 24, which is the return of Jesus Christ to planet Earth. The second coming. He's already come, but He's coming back. And one of the tenets of the church from the early centuries was that we believe Jesus is coming again. Whenever you mention the coming of Christ, there are scoffers. There are people who have that little smirk and go, yeah, right. That's what grandma used to talk about. And even Peter noted there are those who say, where is the promise of his coming? For since our fathers fell asleep, all things remain the same. Back in 1870, a clergyman visited a friend who was the president of a college. He stayed in his home and they had a conversation one evening. The clergyman said that he believed nothing more could be invented that already has been invented. And the educator looked at him and said, You've got to be kidding. I think just the opposite. Why, I believe within 50 years that men will be able to fly through the air like birds. And the clergyman said, Nonsense. Flight is strictly reserved for the angels. Man will never be able to fly. What is ironic is the person who spoke that was named Milton Wright. W-R-I-G-H-T. Ring a bell? He had two sons, Wilbur and Orville. And in 30 years' time from that statement, they would invent the machine that took people around the world. So that every time we see an airplane now, we remember that Milton Wright was wrong in that prediction. An outlandish prediction by his friend that within 50 years people would fly. And yet, as outlandish as it seemed then, it happened. Some of the things in Matthew 24 certainly would seem outlandish to people 100, 200, 300 years ago. Not so outlandish to us who live in these days. We've seen so many things come true in prophecy, and we're waiting for the fulfillment of more. This morning, I want to look at Matthew 24 and Luke chapter 21, which is a parallel passage to this, and look at a few things regarding the future. First of all, some questions about the future. The disciples had some questions. So do we. Second, indications about the future. How do we know what time it is prophetically? Not an easy answer. And then finally, the most important part as I see it, the preparations for the future. Matthew 24, the first three verses, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus had been, prior to chapter 24, in Jerusalem, in the temple, debating with the religious leaders. His words were still burning in the disciples' ears. In chapter 23, Jesus predicted that Jerusalem would be leveled And the house of Israel, that is the temple, would be left desolate. And so they leave Jerusalem. Jesus goes back to Bethany. Bethany is where Lazarus lived. Mary and Martha lived there. He was staying with them. And on the way back to spend the evening, they would have passed by the Mount of Olives. They're climbing up. Beautiful vantage point of Jerusalem sprawled before them. You can see the temple visible And so the disciples, as if to draw Jesus' attention, look at the temple, look at those buildings. Why? Because it's as if they are saying, how can the Messiah rule? You are the Messiah, we reckon. How can the Messiah rule without Jerusalem, without a temple? And so look at these magnificent buildings. This is the temple of God. And Jesus says, Assuredly, I say, not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus made a very graphic prediction of what would happen in 70 A.D. when the Romans came as the temple burned, they dismantled every single stone to get the gold that had melted through the cracks. This brings two questions to the disciples' minds. They asked Jesus in verse 3, two questions. When's all this going to happen? And what's the sign of your coming in the end of the world, the end of the age? I'm glad they asked the question, because the answer is the longest answer in the New Testament. All of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25 is Jesus' answer to those two simple questions. Aren't you glad they asked the question? So much of our future is given to us as the answer to that. When it comes to future stuff, eschatology, future events, end times events, These are much debated and frequently misunderstood things. Depending on which theological lenses you wear and approach the Scripture with, you'll believe different things. You get ten theologians together, ask them the same questions, you'll get different answers as they see the Scripture. It can be confusing sometimes, I admit. I I heard of a seminary student, as the professor was talking about the premillennial view of Christianity, and talking about the different positions within the premillennial view of the rapture of the church. There's pre-tribulation rapture view. There's the mid-tribulation rapture view. There's the post-tribulation rapture view. One student was so totally exasperated by the the discussion that he folded his arms and shouted out in class, I-A-K! And everybody was silent and looked over at the student. And the professor said, Excuse me, but what did that outburst mean, I-A-K? The student said, It means, I am confused. (laughs) The professor said, Well, young man, confused begins with a C, not a K. And the student retorted quickly, Well, it goes to show you how confused I really am. (laughs) And there's a lot of people confused about the end times events, but we have questions similar to the disciples. God, what is your plan for the future? When is all this coming down? What things can we expect as sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, to be fair to the disciples, when they asked him a question about the coming of Jesus, they did not have the second coming in their minds. We do. We infer that from the text. They had a Jewish background, a Jewish eschatology. And they saw the coming of the Messiah and the establishment of the kingdom on earth as one event because of the prophecies that were squished together in the Old Testament. They didn't have the benefit of the rest of the New Testament. They didn't anticipate a second coming of Jesus Christ. They didn't think he was leaving to begin with. The primary meaning of the word coming means presence, manifestation. Here would be a better translation of that question. What will be the sign of your manifesting yourself in your full and permanent presence as the Messiah and King? Now, we know from reading the rest of the Bible that Jesus had in his mind a second coming. He said, I am going, and if I go, I will come again. He predicted it. I want to just put a couple of thoughts in your mind about the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes, it will be divided into two events, as far as you and I are concerned. Oh, He's coming to rule and reign on the earth. But before He does that, and the debate always is how soon before that will it happen, Jesus will come for His church. He will not come to the earth. But there is the rapture of the church, as we call it. Then there will be the second coming of Christ to the earth. Two very different events. At the rapture of the church, Jesus comes for the church, not for the world. Jesus will not descend to the earth. We will go up to meet Him in the sky. As bizarre as that sounds. I remember when I first heard that, I said, you got to be kidding. You actually believe that? And then they showed it to me in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul said, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, "...with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air." And there it was, right before me. This event will be sudden, unannounced, unable to be predicted. Paul said it will be in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. If you look down at verse 43 of Matthew 24... Jesus said, therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Unexpected, sudden event. Now there are people who object to the very term rapture. They say things like, the word rapture isn't even in the Bible. Well, the word Bible isn't even in the Bible either. But we still have one, don't we? And we have the doctrine of the rapture of the church. Where does the word come from? The Greek word that we will be uh, caught up to meet the Lord in the air is the Greek word harpazo, which means to be snatched away or to be taken away. And when Jerome translated the Greek New Testament into the Latin Vulgate, he used the term rapto or rapere. That's where we get our term rapture from. Every now and then I will quote to you a portion of the Wiest translation of the New Testament. Kenneth Weist was a scholar who decided to expand upon the meaning of words so that you get a full, orbed understanding. Here's his translation of 1 Thessalonians 4. We shall be snatched away forcibly in masses of saints having the appearance of clouds for a welcome meeting with the Lord in the lower atmosphere. That's what's coming down in the rapture of the church. That's one event. Then there is the second coming of Jesus Christ, far different from the rapture. This will happen after a period of great tribulation. Jesus said, an unparalleled, horrible time in human history. At the end of that event, or series of events known as the tribulation, Revelation 19 shows heaven opening, Jesus coming to the earth with his people, with the children of God who have been raptured. Look down at Matthew chapter 24, verse 29 and 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory." Unlike the rapture, this event is predictable. It comes at the end of a seven-year period clearly marked in Scripture by two three-and-a-half-year segments, the last half known as the Great Tribulation Period. Everyone will see him at this event. Down in verse 27 of Matthew 24. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's the second coming of Christ. That's when He takes over the world. And frankly, I can't wait. It would be great if there were no more elections and politicians to break promises, just Jesus to take over the earth. I'm waiting for that event. Now, why am I going through some of this? I think it's important from time to time to know what heaven's going to be like or to know what the future is going to be like in God's calendar, especially as His children. I don't want you to be like a country bumpkin when you get to heaven. What's that? (laughs) And the person who studied the scripture next to you, elbowing you going, didn't you read the Bible? This is what's going to happen next. Having said that, let's move on to verse (laughs) 4. The questions are asked. And now the indications of the future are given. Jesus answered. And we're only going to touch on a few of these things this morning because of time. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not troubled. For all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. I have to confess to you that I believe most of the signs given in this chapter refer in their full fulfillment to the tribulation period. But that there are indications of these signs already are all around us. It's sort of like shadows that are being cast. If somebody walks behind you, and you see their shadow, you know somebody's behind you. You just see this shadow kind of growing around you. you go, oh, who's there? And though these signs refer to, in their fulfillment, the future, and you can read Revelation chapter 6 where it's almost a mirror image of these things during the tribulation period, yet we're starting to see signs of these things all around us. And Jesus said, In Luke's gospel, chapter 21, when these things begin to take place, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing very, very near. There's a key phrase in verse eight. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Some of you have translations that say these are the beginning of birth pains. It's a better translation. What is a sign that a woman is having a baby? Is it pain? No. Certain kinds of pain called birth pains. If a woman's pregnant and goes, I have a pain, the doctor won't take her seriously unless she says, I'm having more frequent and more intense kinds of pains. They're timed every few minutes. And they're growing. He'd say, come in. It's time. And so when these signs increase in frequency and intensity, they're indicators. Jesus said, the end is not yet, for nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And then he gives the rest of these signs. So let's look at a couple of them. First of all, in verse 5, there will be spiritual deception that will mark the end times. Many will come in my name, and they will say, I am Christ. Every so often, some charismatic guy or person or group uh, arises saying, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ. I've met a few of them. Most of them seem to live in California for some unknown reason. (laughs) But I've had people come up to me and say, I am Christ. I've had people come here after a service and say, I am Jesus Christ. I am come again. My first question is always, where were you born? And one guy said, New Jersey, not Bethlehem. I knew it wasn't the real Jesus Christ. (laughs) Let me give you a few examples to refresh your memory of some who have claimed in recent times, or at least followers have claimed, that that person is Messiah. Father Divine, Charles Manson, Jim Jones of People's Temple, Sun Young Moon of the Unification Church, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, founder of Transcendental Meditation, Dalai Lama, David Koresh of the Branch Davidians. I still have an article from 1982 I've kept. I thought it was outdated till just the other day. But it's a full page article from nineteen eighty two newspaper. It says, The Christ is now here. Bold letters. Introducing Lord Matreya, the world ruler who is coming, the Christ. His spokesman said that he was hiding out in London somewhere and soon would be revealed he never was. Thought he dropped off the face of the earth till recently. Benjamin Krem, his spokesman, surfaced again saying he's about to be revealed very, very shortly to the whole world. He is the master teacher that all the people of all world religions are looking towards by different names, of course. Christ, Messiah, Buddha, Imam, Mahdi, Krishna, take your pick, the world ruler. And his followers say that when he comes, he'll be able to speak to all the world simultaneously in their own language. Now, it's interesting. In one sense, they're right. There is coming a world ruler that all of these false Christs point to, whether this is the Antichrist or not, but he's called the Antichrist. People, like the rest of us worldwide, are so sick of politics. We're waiting for somebody who can fix the problems, really fix the problems. And people are becoming more and more open to the possibility of that kind of a dictator more than ever before. Jesus made an interesting prediction. He said to the Jews, I have come to you in my Father's name. You didn't receive me. But there is coming one who will come in his own name. Him you will receive. He was predicting the Antichrist. That's why a chill goes up my spine every time I go to Israel and I read those banners and the bumper stickers that says, Get ready, the Messiah is coming. I always think, Which one? Because they're not expecting the second coming of Jesus Christ, that's for sure. They're expecting the coming of their world ruler to fix the Middle East peace problems. Jesus also predicted massive warfare. He says wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Now you might think, well, that's not anything new as a sign We've always had war. In fact, truth be known, only 8% of world history has been known as a designated time of peace. And in the last 3,100 years, 8,000 formal peace treaties have been broken. We've always had wars, rumors of wars. But again, in verse 8, all of these are the beginning of birth pains. When these things become more frequent and more intense, heads up. USA Today had an article quoting Richard Starr, International Studies Director at the Hoover Institution of War, Revolution, and Peace in Palo Alto, California, saying, quote, There are more wars with more people killed all over the world than ten years ago. On any given day, 30 to 40 nations are engaged in war, conflict, wars of liberation, territorial disputes, religious disputes. According to the National Defense Council Foundation, Conflicts around the globe have doubled since 1989, since 10 years ago. Doubled. And one out of three people in the world live in lands enduring armed conflict. That's the present. How does the future look in regards to warfare? Well, let me put it to you this way. Over the past five decades, we have had relative stability. Not peace, relative stability in the world, because there were two superpowers, one in the West, one in the East. It was all based on a doctrine known as mutually assured destruction, M-A-D. It was based on three premises. Premise number one, there's only two superpowers. Number two, there's a relative balance between them. And number three, they're both rational. All of those things have been tossed out the window. There's no more two. There are now 12 third world countries who are emerging as nuclear powers. It is not in balance. It is an arms race. While we de-escalate, they escalate. And third, is it rational? Put it to you this way. How do you fight someone who believes they'll go to heaven if they lose? Not very well. I have a couple nations in mind, Iran and Libya, that have possibilities of warfare like that. Another question I'll pose to you. Does it make you uncomfortable knowing that there are nations with nuclear capabilities that believe in reincarnation? Pakistan and India have recently gone through testings of their weapons. The world was alerted. One of the great fears that we have in the West is the terrorism, not perhaps nuclear-wise, though it is a real threat. We're worried about chemical warfare. What if terrorists come here with chemical weapons? Now, we recently went into Iraq again. The um, U.S. intelligence and NATO said there are twice as many countries that have nuclear, excuse me, biological weapons than 20 years ago today. And according to George Robertson, the British defense secretary, he recently went on record saying the reason we came into Iraq recently to bomb them is because the military scientists in Iraq were that close away from perfecting a remote control anthrax air force capable of destroying millions of people around the globe by remote control. He says, that's the reason we went in, and that's the reason we're on hold right now, watching and waiting to see what happens in that part of the world. Then Jesus predicted famines, pestilence, earthquakes. Of course, famine always corresponds with war because whenever there's war, the food stuff, the food supply is hindered, hampered. Already there is poverty. We don't see it in this country. Oh, I know we see it a little bit. But there are 7 million children Right now, in the world, 7 million children that are refugees of famine and war. And every 32 seconds, a child is born into poverty. It is estimated that half the people who have ever lived on earth, ever, are alive right now at this moment. And half the food ever consumed in world history has been consumed in the last 20 years. So the population is growing, thus the poverty is growing, and with the proliferation of nuclear, biological, chemical weapons. What does the future hold? Well, we remember Chernobyl, yes. What happened with the nuclear reactor in Russia that caused milk cows in Western Europe to be contaminated? The contamination of food supplies with nuclear fallout and that kind of biological fallout, staggering. Uh, Jesus predicted pestilence. That's disease. Nothing new. There's always been disease, but now scientists are telling us that the ability of these diseases to mutate and become resistant to antibiotics is pretty amazing. And again, with famine and with warfare, pestilence would be a natural result of that, the breakdown of the immune system. Now, if this message were given... 100, 200, 300 years ago, there'd be lots of smiles like, where are you from? What planet do you live on? All of this kind of stuff seems unthinkable way back then. Today it sounds like, yeah, that's recent, current stuff. But listen to this prediction given back in 1860 by a French scientist named Pierre Brussel imagining what might happen. The scientist said, quote, Within 100 years of physical and chemical science, man will know what the atom is. It is my belief that when science reaches this stage, God will come down to earth and will say to humanity, Gentlemen, it's closing time. What an amazing prediction. Very prophetic it sounds. Those of you who peruse the internet have probably come across the doomsday clock, the scientist that are trying to warn the world of the possibility of nuclear threat. And so they set the clock, how much time we have left as a, as a species. The doomsday clock, they call it. Back in 1995, they set the doomsday clock to 14 minutes before midnight. They just recently reset it to 9 minutes before midnight, according to these scientists. Okay, now that I've scared you sufficiently, uh, let's turn over to Luke chapter 21 and get better news, and that is preparation for the future. It should comfort you that Jesus not only knew, but told us what is going to come down and told his disciples to hang on, there's better news. Luke chapter 21 is the parallel to what we just read, so we're not going to read all of it, but he included some some verses that Matthew did not include. Look at verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, on earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and with great glory. Now, when these things begin to happen, look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. That's point one on how to be prepared for what's coming down. Have an eye focused upon heaven. You know why? Because this isn't where you live permanently. You hang your hat here. You're a pilgrim. You're a stranger. You're passing through this land. Your home is heaven. Look toward that. Live in the reality of the future. Don't buy into the the, the philosophy, oh, that's just escapist. Have your eye firmly fixed on what's coming ahead. Look up, your redemption draws near. The Lord's coming soon. Paul said to the Romans 1,900 years ago, your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. Well, if that was true 1,900 years ago, how much more true could it be said of us today? Your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. C.S. Lewis said, A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the great things a Christian is meant to do. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. Look up. Anticipate. Second, not only a focused eye on heaven, but a faithful walk on the earth. Look at verse 34. Jesus continues, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, the cares of this life, that that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Jesus said in another place, occupy until I come. Be busy. Be responsible. Work hard. Yes, you're going to the kingdom of heaven, but you need to live responsibly till you get there. Be involved. But don't be involved to the extent that your heart gets off track. Don't become so involved that the altar of your heart loses the flame for Jesus Christ. Don't get weighed down in the words of Jesus Christ. There are some people who feel uncomfortable in the church and uncomfortable in the world. They've got just enough of Jesus Christ in them to feel uncomfortable around pagans, just enough of pagan influence to make them feel uncomfortable in the church. Choose who you'll serve. Choose the Lord this day. Serve Him with all of your heart. Don't get weighed down. A farmer once said that the tree of all the trees in his apple orchard that had it the worst was the tree that was at the edge of his property. Not only would it get harvested, thus beaten for its apples by his own men, but people on the other side of his property on the edge that had the legal right would also beat that tree so they could get apples. He said it was the most beat up tree of any one that he had. And I think the most beat-up Christian is the one who's enduring conviction from the Holy Spirit and getting beat up by the world. Be in Christ, firmly in Christ. Third, verse 36, a formulated prayer to God. Jesus said, Watch, therefore, and pray always. Now, before you say, I just don't know what to pray for. Just buy a newspaper. You will get enough fuel for prayer right in the first page. And so as you read the good news, the Bible, and you read the bad news, the newspaper, generally that's what it's filled with, you'll have enough fuel for prayer. But a specific prayer is to be made. I ask you to notice it. Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things, that will come to pass. That's the judgment, the tribulation coming. And stand before the Son of Man. And so I'm praying that because Jesus told me to pray it. Lord, keep me focused, centered, walking with You, that I might escape all of these things that is coming to planet Earth, the tribulation. You know, Jesus promised the church at Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3, that they would escape the coming judgment on Earth. He said, since You have kept My command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. So I'm praying for that. Just as in the days of Noah, when the floods came down, Noah went up. And just like Sodom and Gomorrah, when judgment fell upon Sodom, God took them out first. That's a biblical truth. And I'm praying that I would stand worthy. The future, how does it look? Well, it depends, doesn't it? Every future, every tomorrow has two handles. The handle of fear. The handle of faith. Which one are you grabbing? The handle of anxiety or the handle of faith? Prayer helps you grab the right handle. The handle of faith. Until then... I like what one old Southern preacher said to his congregation. He said, it is time for our church to wake up, to sing up, to preach up, to pray up, to never give up or let up or back up or shut up till the church is filled up or we go up. Amen. And so, Father, we pray as we close this service that we will be prayed up, confident in you, Confident in the face of our future, not running from what's coming ahead, but firmly trusting, being occupied with your business until you come, looking up, expecting your return, living in the light of your return. And Father, I pray that until then, until you come, we know where we're going if we know Jesus Christ. I pray that no one who is a believer would ever be content to go to heaven alone. We'd want to bring somebody with us. And you'd help us to share that message. In Jesus' name, amen.